Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. And tonight, we actually need to cover about 10 verses to complete this unit, and I'd like to do this as a unit. So first, or rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 26. In the first 13 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul stressed the importance of enduring hardship. And in verses 14 through 26, he shifts the emphasis subtly, not strikingly, because they are related topics, to Timothy's need to remain faithful to the Lord. Paul is encouraging and exhorting his partner in ministry to hang in there, both in his public ministry and in his personal life. In the end, it is difficult, if not altogether impossible, to separate the two. Remember in verse 14, Paul said, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Believers can become absorbed in trivialities that are non-essentials when it comes to the glorification of God with our lives. It is this we need to avoid. Before you start a war, make sure that you're right. And then second, make sure that whatever you're fighting about is worth fighting over. Now, please don't misunderstand, because it's going to come up in our passage tonight. There are some things that are worth fighting over. There are some things that are worth arguing over. But not all things are worth the battle. Just think. Just pause and consider and think before you wage war with another believer. And when you do have to engage in argumentation, I pray that it's a loving argumentation, and that can be, but I also would pray that you would understand when it's time to say enough. When, when all the views have been heard, when I understand what you're saying, you understand what I'm saying, and it's time to say, uh, okay, I get your point. Don't agree with it, but I get, what, get, get your point and then move on. Because there is a time that we have to do that. There are times when nothing can be gained by further argumentation, at least not right then. Paul says, actually, if we don't heed this advice, it will lead to catastrophe, uh, the Greek word for catastrophe. Don't do it. Don't invite catastrophe into your life by wasting, by wasting time with fighting over needless trivialities. It's not only beneficial, but Paul says it's destructive. Then in verse 15, on the other side of that, the other side of that coin, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So in, in the positive side of the other side of that coin, Paul tells us to be diligent, to make sure that when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive God's approval, and that we would not be ashamed. You see, this passage, along with one in First John, tells us the possibility for shame at the judgment seat of Christ exists. And there's no reason for anybody in this room to fear the judgment seat of Christ. You, you know the information. You know that it's coming. You've been given time to glorify God with your life. The only reason that you have to tremble is if you've wasted your life. Don't waste it. You've only got one. Some of my reincarnation believing friends might disagree with that, but you've got one shot at it. Give it your best shot. And then one day it's going to be over. You won't have another shot. And eternity is a long time. If, if we live, nowadays, I guess if you live 80, 85, 88, 89, 90, 106 years like Rob Byers did, we consider that a long time. 
You know, Martin Luther's been dead a whole lot longer than 106 years. <laughs> you know, Moses has been gone a lot longer than that. They're up there in eternity already. One of these days, we're going to look back at all this and say, boy, you know, there were a lot of opportunities that were placed in front of me to glorify God. I wish I would have done better. And I think that's for those who were faithful that will say that. Imagine those who were willingly unfaithful, who wouldn't darken the door of a church to listen to a Bible study if their life depended on it. And guess what? In a way, it does. So we ought to be diligent. We spent some time last time discussing the idea that this particular word doesn't mean to study so much. It's only translated that way in one, one old ancient text, the one old ancient translation, the, the, New King, or the King James, even New King James changed it to be diligent. There is a certain amount of work involved in the Christian life. The whole thing about let go and let God, well, that's a nice idea, and that's a part of it. That's the active passivity that Francis Schaeffer used to talk about. There is an active side, there's a passive side, but we're actively passive. Meaning we understand the Holy Spirit does His work through us, but we still have to get up out of bed. We have to go approach the person at the coffee shop and talk to them about Christ. Sometimes they'll come to you. And I have had that happen to me. I have prayed for people, or I have prayed for opportunities, rather, to give the gospel to people. And then when it happens, when people come up, say, what do you need to do to be saved anyway? just shocks me. <laughs> but, but it happens. So if you're bold enough, pray for that tomorrow. Pray for an opportunity to be used. Whether it's giving the gospel, or whether it's providing encouragement to someone, or providing help to someone, pray for an opportunity to be used. Now, while this message was given in its original form to Timothy and the church leaders at Ephesus, it has significance by way of application to all of us. So don't just read this passage and think, well, that's just for Timothy. He was the one who was supposed to rightly handle the word of truth. And that means, as we studied last time, and also on Sunday morning, not just learning it, but doing it. Learning it and living it. It's always part of the same package. The Bible knows nothing. The scriptures say nothing of learning the word and leaving it there. You cannot find a passage where that's the, the main idea. It's always, all the passages about studying are always followed by doing. It only makes sense. Now read with me, verses 16 through 26, our passage for tonight. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will fur lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. And verse 20, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Verses 16 and the first part of verse 17, 
there is a contrast now to, per, to properly handling the word of truth. You see the word but there, and that, but, that, that word but should draw our attention back to the previous verse, our study of last week. In contrast to rightly handling the word of truth, to being diligent to show ourselves approved, in contrast to that is this. And again he goes back to avoiding worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. These are meaningless discussions that characterize the world. Now this can be more than just trivialities over theological issues. Sometimes, sometimes we look very much like the world in our conversations. I was at a, I was at a, a super salad one day with uh, two very good friends. One goes to this church, one uh, I hope will someday. And we, you know how super salad, you sit fairly close together. And we were having a conversation, don't even remember what the conversation was over. And, and finally, toward the end of it, as this one lady was getting up from the table next to us, she said, do you mind if I interrupt you guys? And I thought, oh boy, we've, something, something slipped out. You know, we, we really offended her. And I said, no ma'am, what would you like to say? And she said, I'd just like to say, it is really nice to sit at lunch and hear men talk about God for a change. I was so thankful that's what we <laughs> I said, well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Because I didn't know what we had said. And with the, the three of us, there was no telling what we had said. But it would have been, see, the point is, a lot of times, really, even amongst believers, we, our, our talk does really sound worldly, not in the sense of profane language. I'm not talking about that. That's, that's a whole different thing. I'm talking about just worldly chatter. Chatter that really, at the end of the day, is meaningless. It's okay to talk about Jeff Backwell's uh, batting average or why Andy Pettit decided he wanted to trade to the New York, New York Yankees and things like that. Th- those, are, those are decent topics for a time. But if that's all we talk about, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ never comes up, we really don't look much different from the world. And so that, along with what he's already talked about, about arguing over trivialities, is what is mentioned in verse 16. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. I like that word, chatter. Reminds me of chipmunks just chattering outside. And then at the end of the day, you just really don't know what they were saying. And, and what he's saying is, if you get into that, if you get into that, that meaningless chatter, it's just going to lead to further meaningless chatter, which is called here ungodliness. Not a kind word. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, that's uh, the word in Greek almost sounds the same. Medically, gangrene is a decay of tissue in a part of the body when the blood supply is obstructed by injury, disease, or some other cause. It's a bad thing to have, gangrene. I understand even today, oftentimes they have to remove the limb to to keep the gangrene and and the disease and the decay from spreading. That's medical gangrene. That's spiritual gangrene. Spiritual gangrene is an obstruction of life. It's an obstruction of the Christian life. It's an obstruction of the life-giving Word of God, which leads to decay of the soul. So rather than a blood supply being cut off, it's the supply of the Word of God that leads... uh, It's the cutting off of the supply of the Word of God that leads to spiritual gangrene. So you can see ungodliness, spiritual or uh, gangrene, uh, catastrophe, catastrophe... Paul's really, uh, in, he, he, is, he really feels like that this is a topic that needs to be stressed and not just ignored. We need to be careful with what we do with all of our lives, not just with a part of it. And he, I, I, once I, I want to reiterate, this doesn't mean you can't talk about the ball game. It, it doesn't mean you can't talk about your golf game. It doesn't mean you can't, you can't talk about the antique show or whatever it is. That would be silliness to say you couldn't do that. 
But what drives your relationships with other people? Is that the only thing that you talk about? Well, now he gives us an example of some people who not only probably have given this worldly chatter, but who have been arguing over useless things, but may have been arguing over things that are legit, but didn't know when to say when. So that's part of it, too. And he names them. I, think, I find this interesting. I think we need to be careful. Of course, we all do it. You know, all pastors do it. I do it, too. I'll, I'll, I'll mention someone. I won't give you their name, but I'll say so much information about them. You all know who I'm talking about anyway. So I may, may as well say who we're talking about. If you have the... If you'd have the guts to do that. But Paul didn't mind, and he mentions two of these people. It is supposed that these two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, are two of the false teachers that Paul has been referring to all throughout this epistle, and even alluded to them in the first epistle. These are two men who are arguing about something that probably is worth arguing about, but it looks like they've come to an impasse. It's over the resurrection. These are two men who have gone astray from the truth. Again, hence why scholars think these are two of the false teachers. Saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Well, it would, yeah. <laughs> Just like back in the days in Thessalonica. They were confused. They thought that perhaps the resurrection had already occurred. The rapture of the church. These people apparently had taken that same tactic. Well, it would upset some. It would upset me if someone came along with an idea that, that the whole... Uh, that uh, we missed it, <laughs> and that we're fixing to go through the tribulation at some point. Yeah, that would upset the faith of some. And so Paul mentions them specifically. So here's an example of arguing about something that in the beginning was a legitimate argument. But after time, they weren't, they weren't convinced, and there comes a point in time where it's no longer fruitful to continue the discussion. And this is very hard for most pastors. Very hard for most people who are really interested in the Word of God because we want to beat that other person down until they holler uncle. And they said, yes, you were right and I was wrong. But sometimes they don't do that. <laughs> and if you keep talking about it, all you have done is empower them. And you have taken someone who perhaps didn't deserve to have their view recognized. You have now elevated it up to something that is on a par with the truth, because you're the one that didn't just ignore them. There are times when we just need to say, okay, I, I recognize what you're saying, I, I hear you, but I can't agree with you based upon the Word of God. And then you've got to let them go. Of course, now if you're a pastor and they start fomenting rebellion within the congregation, then there's other steps that the Scriptures say you have to take with regard to that. But there are some times when we just need to move on. And I think... Uh, this is certainly something that's happened with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, in verses 19 through 21, Paul speaks of Timothy's faithfulness in his personal life. So there's a public life for Timothy. There's a personal life for Timothy. And guess what? They both are interconnected. This, uh, Paul has spoken of it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's spoken of it in Titus chapter 1, that there are character issues for those who are the messengers of God. Thankfully, God doesn't require perfection, but he does require a certain character, a, a, sort of, a, a certain character that's above reproach. Let me put it that way. And he goes back to that now in verses 19 through 21. Well, first he says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, even though... These two false teachers have tried to spread their false teaching through the congregation. It's still Christ's church, and nothing's going to happen in that church that he doesn't uh, 
ultimately allow to happen. And then he quotes two Old Testament passages. Probably, I shouldn't say quotes, he alludes to two Old Testament passages, number 16 in Isaiah 52, when he says, The Lord knows who are his. And then let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. So what Paul has done is he's made a, a subtle, again, not, as I said in the introduction, not striking, but subtle shift from public ministry to private life. And in those that are in a position of leadership in a church need to abstain from wickedness. But again, that's not all that need to abstain. The entirety of the church needs to as well. Verses 20 and 21. I want you to, even if you're tired, I want you to, to turn on your listening button right now. Listen very carefully because some of the terminology in these two verses should sound familiar from a study we did oh, about a year and a half. It might have been two years ago now, but it still should sound familiar. Listen carefully. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Where have you heard that vessel for honor, vessel for dishonor phraseology before? Anybody remember? Don't embarrass me if you don't. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's get somebody got it. In Romans chapter 9. You see, in Romans chapter 9, Paul uses this same terminology. He uses it in a very different context. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is in answer to someone who would shake their fist at God and argue back with God, why have you made this way? Why have you made me this way? God uses this vessel of honor and vessel of dishonor terminology and says that it is God who has the right to make one a vessel of honor and one a vessel of dishonor, or one for a, one a vessel that is designed for honorable usage and one a vessel that is designed for dishonorable usage. But it's God that gets to choose. And that's the context of Romans 9. And we have no right to shake our fist and, and argue back with the Creator, why have you made me this way? And a great deal is made in many theological dis, uh, circles, in soteriological circles, the doctrines of salvation, over that particular passage. Romans 9, the sovereignty of God, it is God who decides sovereignly decides who is going to be a vessel made for honorable usage and who would be a vessel made for dishonorable uses. Did you see who decides in this passage? It's the vessel. I wish people would be a little bit more honest and open, especially those who claim the intellectual high ground when it comes to discussions about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how they coexist by divine decree, to point out a passage like this that, that does give the other side of the coin. There are, what he says here in verse 20, in a large house. We're not talking about a one-room shack like like many of the poor in the ancient world would have lived. We're talking about a large house that would have had a variety of vessels. Some were made out of different materials, gold and silver. Some were made out of wood and earthenware. And then some would be... Um, useful for an honorable purpose. Some would be useful for a dishonorable purpose. The honorable purpose would be things like cups that one would drink out of, a plate that you would eat off of, bowls with which you could uh, eat and, and consume, say, soup or cereal or something. A, dis, a, a vessel that would be used for a dishonorable purpose in a large house in the ancient world would have been something like a, a trash can. Or perhaps, I, I think they would have uh, called it at one point in English history, a chamber pot. Or perhaps a bedpan. That, that would have been something that would have been something used for, in this context, a, a dishonorable usage. And here, rather than God being the one that chooses, 
You choose. What kind of vessel do you want to be? You see, here's one of those places, when you compare this with Romans 9, where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man intersect. They coexist. They coexist by divine design, by divine decree. You choose. It's the same imagery as Romans 9, but it's a different, it's a different entity that makes the choice. This is very important in that overall discussion. The sovereignty of God and the free will of men are both realities. No matter what side of the discussion you're on, you can't forget the other side. If you, are, if you lean toward what in theology would be called the Arminian side, you don't want to forget that God is sovereign. Arminius didn't. If you lean toward the Calvinistic side, you don't want to forget that mankind has been given a responsibility to make some choices. In many ways, Calvin didn't forget that. The free will of man is subordinate to the sovereignty of God. Both Calvin and Arminius affirm that truth. I want to say that again because I have taught that differently in the past. And I made a horrible mistake, and I, and I fully admit that to you. I've admitted to God already. And that is that I took what some Calvinists told me about Arminius. And I never read Arminius himself. So in the interest of academic integrity, when I was doing some teaching in some other venues, I went back and read Arminius. Arminius never said you could act outside of the sovereignty of God. I'm glad to hear him having said that. So I was wrong when I said that he did. Both Arminius and Calvin, these two great theologians on opposite sides of this debate, both said that mankind cannot operate outside of the sovereignty of God. And I certainly would agree with that. But I will say that the free will of man is subordinate to the sovereignty of God. Meaning that you wouldn't have an ability to make a choice at all had God not first chosen to put you in that position. I know we're, it's, it's kind of getting a little bit twisted here and a little bit convoluted, but the fact is God had to make the original choice. And he made the original choice to make you choose for him or against him. Even the term free will is a bit of a misnomer. We don't have unlimited free will. I don't have the free will to walk through that wall. Well, I can try to walk through the wall. I could run through the wall, perhaps, since I know that there's only plywood there, but I'm going to get hurt doing it. But I can't, I can't walk through the wall. I can't turn myself into a giraffe. I can't choose to be a giraffe. It just doesn't work that way. I knew some people in the past said, yes, it does. Oh, yeah, the only, reason, the only thing that's keeping you from walking through that wall is a lack of faith. I just don't believe that. It was illustrated to me very, very well one night, long before Cindy and I got married. I lived in a home by myself. It was a... A three-bedroom home is kind of spread out, and and uh, I had a person that came and cleaned the home for me. And there was one particular door to the, to a hallway that was always left open. I never shut that door. There was never any need to because I was the only one that lived in the house. Uh, one evening I got up to go to the restroom. It was dark. Didn't bother to turn on the lights because I knew that that door would be open. And I walked right down the hall in, into the darkness, right smack dab into the door. That broke my nose, bloodied it. And I didn't say, I mean, I was very nice. I didn't say a word about the person that had come in and shut that door when they never were supposed to have done that. I'm just glad I didn't knock my teeth out. But the fact is, I had 100% assurance that I could walk through that space. I didn't think a door was there, but the door was a reality, and it was there. So my free will only goes so far. It only goes so far as God allows it to go. But here you have, here you have one of those passages where the free will of man and the sovereignty of God coexist, and they coexist by divine decree. Now, part of this is a mystery. I have to admit that. There's, there's a part of the finite mind that will never totally understand how those two things coalesce, how they can both be true at the same time, that God is absolutely sovereign, but we have to make the choice. 
But that's what we have on the table. And here's one of those places where an individual has to make the choice, and it is a choice as to what we are to do after salvation. There are some that would tell you that God has made the choice before salvation and after salvation, and that if you're truly saved, that you will persevere in good works to the end of your life. I just don't see that scripturally. I see too many times. I understand, as I said Sunday, I understand where they're coming from theologically. It's called the perseverance of the saints. I also understand some of the history of the perseverance of the saints. It's not just Calvin's doctrine. It goes all the way back to Augustine. But when Calvin taught eternal security, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, came and challenged him about that. They said, you're giving people a license to sin. Where have I heard that before? I mean, name the country. (laughs) And it, it always comes up. And Calvin said, well, no, no, no. See, that's where he flinched. Very fine theologian. Respect him a lot. But he did flinch there. And he said, well, that's not what I mean by eternal security. What I mean is if you're truly saved, you will persevere in good works to the end of your life. Well, this passage says we've got to choose what kind of vessel we want to be. And many other passages exhort us to live a life that is consistent with who we say we are in Christ. Not the least of which is, was our passage last week in 2.15. Now, in chapter 2, verses 22 to 26, we have some concluding applications. And Paul, uh, Paul goes through these in, in a fashion that I would almost call a staccato fashion. It's, it's almost like a rapid fire, almost like a, an automatic weapon. He's firing them one right after another at a fairly quick pace. But he says, now, flee from youthful lust. Once more, the, the very tight audience that Paul is speaking to is Timothy. That's the tightest of the audiences. The second, the second sphere of audience that uh, Paul is speaking to is the church leaders at Ephesus. And then, by extension, he is speaking to us as well. So uh, it would be a huge mistake just to say, this is for Timothy, this is just for pastors, I don't have to do any of this. Well, some of them are very pastor-specific. We'll get to those. But some of them in terms of the principle applied to every single one of us. We're all the Lord's servants. Now, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. The youthful lusts certainly do, uh, they have to include sexual lusts. That's certainly a part of what Paul is saying here. But he's implying more than that. Because when we look at the whole context, he's implying that it is part of a youthful lust to argue about trivialities. It's part of youthful lusts to have worldly chatter. It's the mark of a more mature man or a more mature woman that we know when to walk away. It's a mark of someone who's mature that turns the conversation towards spiritual things because you just realize there's only so much baseball we can talk about. There's only so much football. Like there's only so much of the weather we can talk about. Isn't it funny how we always do that? Boy, it's hot outside. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> thanks for letting me. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> but we all do it. You know, it's raining outside. Well, yeah, that's good. I appreciate it, but that's not going to do anything for my eternal destiny unless perhaps it has to do with the driving carefully or something. But the youthful lust include perhaps those youthful sexual lusts, but it's not all of it. He's talking about everything that he has mentioned from verse 14 on. Pursue righteousness. Again, you see the comparison and contrast. In comparison to arguing over trivialities, not knowing when to say when, not knowing when to say that's enough of the argument, the, the other side of that coin is righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do you see the word flee and the word pursue? Those are, those are action words, are they not? 
And those words remind us, they carry our eyes back to chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. These are words of action. Flee from youthful lust, but pursue righteousness. We're to, in another context, Paul says to flee fornication. Back in the Proverbs, speaking of the sexual side of youthful lust, in the Proverbs, remember how the, the, the writer of the Proverbs says that you need to, to flee from this woman who would seduce you. Because while you think it's a real good thing, there's, you, you, you bring your hand to her breast and you pull back a nub, basically. Because you get burned in the process. These are action words. So we're to flee from one but pursue the other. Faith, love, peace. These are all three very important words to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Certainly faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, but also peace. This reminds us of his Hebrew background, his Jewish background. It's the the, uh, Greek word, irene, but it's the Jewish, if translated into Hebrew, that would be shalom. It's a very common Hebrew greeting. I made the mistake one time of, of greeting some of my Arab friends uh, with the term shalom. Uh, it didn't go over. Uh, their, their greeting is pronounced slightly differently. And they informed me of that. And I informed them that I meant no harm by it. And I had nothing, no problem with my Jewish friends either, did they? And uh, apparently they did. So... Paul gives comparison and contrast all through this passage, but particularly here in verse 22 again. Look at verse 23, again a comparison and contrast. In, a, in comparison, and actually in contrast to pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. How many times does he have to say that in this passage for us to get the point? He's, he is... He's, he's into repetition here, isn't he? He does, the divine text does it for us. We don't even have to do it. All we have to do is go verse by verse and we get the repetition. It's there. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. This is one of the hardest things that those in leadership have to do because I'm perfectly willing to answer your questions. I really am. That's part of my responsibility as your pastor. If we ever get too busy, if we ever get too big that, that there's not somebody here to answer the questions that you have about the Word of God, then we've gotten too big. We've gotten too impersonal if that's the case. And I know sometimes things slip between the cracks, and if they do, forgive me and just shoot me an email, make a phone call, and we'll get it taken care of for you. But um, there are times when you have to consider the question and either say, well, I don't know. You know, like the example I've given to try to avoid any modern examples, how many angels can dance on the head of the pen? I don't know. Um, I would try to be civil enough to you to also tell you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I don't care, but I don't. You know. Um, you know one way you can tell whether you should really ask someone else a question, whether it's a pastor or anybody? Ask yourself this before you ask somebody else. Does it matter? Is there any, is there any eternal significance here at all? Any at all? And if the answer is no, you may still go ahead and ask it, but don't get offended by the answer. If if they answer it a different way than what you would like, then just say, okay, I have a different view. But there are plenty of important things that we have to to stand the line and fight about. When I go on some of these trips, I've told you before, eternal security always comes up. And we've got to to hold the line. Because I think that's a foundational doctrine to the Christian faith. Salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Got to stand the line. 
But some other things we, we can agree to disagree and move on. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. It doesn't say what they are here, does it? It doesn't give us a listing of what those might be. Every generation is, is going to have their own. But we do know that there are some things that produce quarrels. And that's not what God wants. Paul just comes right out and says it in verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That's God gave the gift of pastor-teacher to a lot of different personality types. And um, it is a command for that, no matter what your personality type, to treat the Lord's sheep, those who are his, in a certain way. He's already said that these kind of foolish and ignorant speculations produce quarrels. So if you want to avoid that, then avoid the foolish and, and ignorant speculations. But as opposed to being quarrelsome, those who are messengers of the Lord must be kind to all, not just to some. It's easy to be kind to some. Sometimes certain sheep make it difficult for you to be kind to them. Just because the, the, way they, the way they approach you. Some people approaching kindness themselves, and it's easy to return kindness with kindness. Isn't it? I mean, for all of us, isn't that easy? Sometimes people don't approach in such a kind manner. Sometimes people approach in a very aggressive manner. It doesn't matter. The word, very word of God, the command of God, says that those who are in leadership should be kind to all. Again, when it comes to this circle of application, all of us fit in here at some point. So it's not just that the pastor has to be kind, everybody else can be quarrelsome and ugly to everybody. That's not the point. I hope you didn't get that. But this, this passage is one of those passages specifically directed to uh, the pastor, or the elder if you prefer, or elders if you prefer. Able to teach. This is not the first time he's said that. He's uh, said it also in the qualifications for elder. That, that, by the way, this is not a qualification for deacon. The able to teach is a qualification for elder or pastor or bishop, all three of those terms mean the same thing or you know all three of those terms are used interchangeably in the Greek text patient when wronged again sometimes for personality different personality types this is a difficulty nobody does it perfectly I have uh, since I have a small group I'll do this now. I have not always been patient when I've been wronged I'll admit that I'm talking about here at the church my wife just looked at me like yeah dub I'm talking about here <laughs> Talk about here at the church. I can see back there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I watch you. But the, no, I'm talking about here at the church. And, uh, I haven't always been that way, and, and some of you have seen that. And my apologies. Um, but hopefully, on the whole, and believe me, there are many, many times when patience has been exhibited that you didn't see it. I didn't even know that patience was being exhibited. And, and that's the way it ought to work. I can't help but, but at least insert this. There are some that are not familiar with the Word of God that look at that as a weakness. You know, he should have done this or he should have done that. You should have. I don't have a choice in the matter. There, there, you have to instruct. There's times when you have to correct. But... We're also supposed to be patient when wronged, which does mean that sometimes sheep wrong pastors, and sometimes pastors wrong sheep. It goes both ways. But when that happens, there needs to be, in verse 25, gentleness 
correcting those who are in opposition. Oh, how many times? I, I, I can almost say without exaggeration, times without number. I've had folks that came up and they were extremely, at least appeared to be, extremely upset about something that was taught or something in a doctrinal statement, and they're fiercely in opposition. And the temptation is to be fierce back with them. But if you can possibly do it, to answer in kindness, a gentle answer turns away wrath, does it not? Whether you're in an interpersonal relation with someone else or a pastor to a congregant, if you can answer in gentleness with those who are in opposition, perhaps, just perhaps, God might lead them to a different point of view. But sometimes we can answer questions, we can answer challenges with such fierceness, with such ferocity, that it leaves no room for their repentance. It leaves no room for them to change their mind because you have just put them on such a spot that they can't change their mind then. It becomes too big of an ego thing. But if you answer in kindness, if you answer with gentleness, it just could be that God would grant them repentance, meaning in this case a change of mind, not so much a turning from sin, but in this passage the most basic meaning of the word repentance, changing of mind, leading to the knowledge of the truth as opposed to false teaching. Does that make sense? As opposed to the false teaching. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, this is serious business. This isn't who should the rockets trade. You you got your opinion, I've got mine. It really doesn't matter. I mean, unless Alexander would make that decision. But here, these are things that do matter. Because it does show you that there's a... There's a serious spiritual battle going on. And those who are locked up in the false teaching are under the snare of the devil. They have been held captive by him to do his will. So there's an importance to that gentle answer turning away wrath. So I I just put that before you. I would trust that you would not think that the gentleness in... And correcting those who are in opposition, patience when someone is wronged, I would hope that you would not think that that was a weakness, but if you do, that's your business. And it would be a mistake for you to do that, because it's, a, it's contrary to the Word of God. So Paul has talked about faithfulness in one's public life, faithfulness in one's personal life, and then he has made these concluding applications. In the second chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul has compared the minister, the believer minister, to seven things. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a laborer, a vessel, and now a servant slave or a bond servant. He's encouraged his young associate to stand firm in the face of suffering and to handle it with dignity and integrity with an eye always on Jesus Christ. Further, he urges Timothy to avoid discussions that are fruitless, whether they are regarding trivial things or perhaps essential things that have run their course. Keep essentials at the front. Or as Gary Horton likes to say, keep the first things the first things. And finally, the behavior of the messenger is anything but irrelevant. The truth is that people see Christ through the messenger. And God has prescribed the behavior that is expected of his messengers. I close with a few words from Francis Schaeffer. I think he sums up the ideas that have been presented in this passage so well. 
Uh, it takes about two minutes to, to go over this. I, it's a lengthy quote, but please bear with me. It'll be worth your time. The Christian's call. The Christian's call is to believe right doctrine, true doctrine, the doctrine of the Scripture. But it is not just a matter of standing on right doctrine, though that is so important. Neither is it merely to be that which can be explained by natural talent, character, or energy. The Christian is not called to present merely another message in the same way as all other messages are presented. We must understand that it is not only important what we do, but how we do it. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, between Christ's resurrection and ascension, he gives a command not just to preach the gospel, but to wait for the Holy Spirit and then preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel without the Holy Spirit is to miss the entire point of the command of Jesus for our era. In the area of Christian activities or Christian service, how we are doing it is as at least important as what we're doing. Whatever is not an exhibition that God exists misses the whole purpose of the Christian's life now on this earth. According to the Bible, we are to be living in a supernatural life now, in this present existence, in a way that we will never be able to do again through all eternity. Here's this be diligent to show thyself approved thing. I go back to Schaefer. This is Francis Schaefer, by the way, from a book he wrote called True Spirituality. Fine book. Finally, I conclude with this. We are called upon to live a supernatural life now by faith. Eternity, he says, will be wonderful. But there is one thing heaven will not contain, and that is the call, the possibility, and the privilege of living a supernatural life here and now by faith before we see Jesus face to face. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that you placed before us tonight to open your word and to glean these truths. Father, I realize that some of these truths are difficult for us. It is, it is against our nature to be kind when wronged. It is against most of our natures to be patient, to, to answer wrath with kindness. Father, it's against our nature to avoid idle chatter sometimes. But Father, I do pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And we'll ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.